When it comes to weight management, we tend to focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat. That's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up today. Welcome everyone to Long Ball Legacies. My name is Daniel Port. I'm your host here every single week, coming out every Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time on the Picturelist Podcast Network. Here every week on Long Ball Legacies, y'all come and join me as we look at the players who have helped shape the story of baseball and the mythology and tall tales of American history and baseball history. I know the last few weeks we looked at a couple third basemen, looked at Scott Rowland and sort of his impact that came out of him getting elected into the Hall of Fame. Nolan Arenado, we looked at Manny Machado, but I do realize that it is actually Women's History Month. And so I wanted to put out an episode talking about some of the remarkable women that we've seen in baseball, whether it's playing it, coaching it, or having an impact on the game. And I apologize for literally getting this episode out on the last day of Women's History Month, uh, but I had good reason. The first maybe isn't that good of a reason, but it's mostly being that I stink at planning ahead and looking at a calendar. And so I thought things lined up better when I planned it all out. And if I'm being honest, and so in an effort to keep everything relevant, I knew looking at the the calendar, I wanted to do two Negro League episodes and then three Scott Rowland episodes and then an episode centered around women in baseball. I originally had the episode for women in baseball between the Negro League episodes and the Scott Rowland episodes, but then I ran into an unfortunate conundrum. If you thought that we had a lack of recorded statistics for the Negro Leagues, we actually did an even worse job keeping track of the stats for women's baseball leagues. And so this made a ranking most women's players throughout history quite difficult, honestly. And I had to put a lot of thought into figuring out how I would rank these folks. That is what we do here on this podcast. I'm talking about them and I'm trying to put them in perspective. And then I said, do I want to rank them at all? Should I just really focus on trying to put, uh, to shine a spotlight on these impressive women? And I went back and forth as to what the right process was. At times, I thought it would be disrespectful to not rank women players. Does that send a message I don't think they're worthy of? At other times, I thought I was maybe running the risk of holding them to an unfair standard. And to clarify what I mean by that, I think women are equals to men in the game of baseball. That is absolutely the case. What I mean is that we as a society have a tendency to hold uh, women to unfair standards of expectations when it comes to the legitimacy of their accomplishments in sports, uh, and especially sports that we incorrectly ascribe as men's sports. To give an example, I think of Danica Patrick. Patrick ran over 190 races over a seven-year period as a woman in NASCAR, which at the time was populated almost solely by men. She finished in the top 10 in a race seven times, and in 2015 and 2016, finished as high in the rankings as 24th. 
that's incredibly impressive. She's also the only woman to win a NASCAR race. That's a more successful career than the vast majority of men who have raced in NASCAR history, let alone women. But her career was painted by many as a sign women couldn't hang with men in a man's sport. Uh, yet that's ridiculous. She was more successful than most men and most people in the world in that specific sport and was an excellent uh, racer, uh, driver, I don't know. I don't know what the term is, but to claim a woman can't hang if she isn't one of the greatest ever is absurd and an unfair comparison. Now, as someone who thinks a woman absolutely could play in the majors, I, I think that's a straw man argument or a impossible argument concocted by by misogynists, so to say. And uh, I don't want my rankings to feed that perception either about women in baseball or to help perpetuate that sort of unfair standard. With that in mind, like I said, I went back and forth and tried to figure out what I wanted to do. And I'm not, what I did came to was I'm not, I'm going to talk about a bunch of different women who played baseball throughout baseball history here today. And I'm not going to rank every one of them because some of them don't have the statistics to, to look at or some didn't quite have the sort of the far-reaching impact but are important to talk about and I thought that it would be unfair to them to to put them onto the list in terms of putting their accomplishments in, in perspective and then there are a few that I, I feel like you, we really can judge that we can look at and say no I think we can judge their impact either statistically or culturally and it's important when we look at the rankings at the end that what I'm judging them on is obviously how well they performed but compared to their peers, and then also look at their importance culturally and say, what, again, as I love to say, how important were these players to telling the story of baseball? And that sometimes will, as you've seen on various episodes here, sometimes outweigh the, the statistical output. And that's important to note that will factor in there as well. Now... I think before we answer where we rank women in baseball or look at the history of women playing baseball, I do think the first question we should ask is, if we grant the premise that the baseline is being a replacement level or better MLB player, could a woman play in the majors? And I propose they indeed can. And so I want to get that out of the way before we even get into it. If you're listening and start dismissing this, let me make the argument. The first argument I'll make there is that there are pretty obvious examples that exist that already make the case that a woman could play in Major League Baseball when you consider cross-sport cross skills and when you look at current women athletes. We'll talk about this later, but one of the original arguments made by the worst commissioner ever, Judge Kennesaw Landis, was that women wouldn't have the stamina to play a full season of baseball. And... I think at this point where we see women play far more strenuous sports in terms of stamina, such as soccer, rugby, tennis, and basketball, it seems to imply they could handle the strain and wear and tear just fine. And it's insane to argue otherwise. Baseball, while I will argue, is the most difficult sport to play in many ways. Hitting a fastball is the hardest thing you'll ever have to do in sports. And it can be difficult mentally and have many challenges to it. Then if you look at these other sports that women are playing right now, there's no reason to think they also couldn't handle 
playing baseball for a full season. And to full disclosure, I recently earned my Master's of Science in Sports Analytics. And one of the major projects I put together was actually a dissection. It was almost a debate with one of my fellow classmates of whether or not women could play baseball at the major league level. So I've thought about this a lot and I've looked at it a lot. And one of the best examples I used to make my argument was was the Women's Tennis Association, was uh, women's tennis in general. And I've mentioned before on this year podcast that I myself play tennis and watch tennis pretty passionately. And the WTA, or the Women's Tennis Association, displays the best of the best that women's tennis has to offer. Now, if you look at some of the best women in the sport, say, Ariana Sabalenka, Maria Sakri, Iga Spiatek, or Elena Rabaikina. All these players sit at around six feet or taller, just like many uh, male baseball players. And they hit serves over 100 miles an hour. By the way, when you hit a serve in tennis, you're doing so without the aid of any of the ball's momentum or any of the physics involved in that. So you actually have to hit it a bit harder and actually hit it far more precisely. It, it's a really fascinating thing, but they regularly hit serves over hundred miles an hour. They regularly hit forehand or backhand strokes over 80 to 90 miles an hour. And if you look at it from a build standpoint, they have plenty of muscle to bring to bear. Do yourself a favor, <laughs> pause this, do whatever you need to and Google a picture of Maria Sakri hitting a tennis ball. She is just as well-built and, frankly, as jacked as any any baseball player you'll see. She looks like she could take, frankly, any womanizer incel Chad who would tell her that she couldn't handle hitting a baseball and bench press him into oblivion. There's clearly the athleticism there and the skill set between those two things. One is more about hitting backspin and one's about hitting topspin. You could see if you gave someone like a Maria Sakri, you know, the, the lifetime of training that your average professional baseball player would get, that she would certainly be capable of hitting a ball as hard as we want a major league baseball player to do. I mean, she could easily hit a baseball 90 plus miles an hour. And, you know, when you look at the fielding, right? So arm strength aside, since tennis players don't throw things, obviously it's hard to make, necessarily make that judgment, even though clearly the, the musculature, the, the, the strength exists. Do yourself a favor and watch a tennis match sometime. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know I've made this argument before that I think tennis is a great way to train infielders to follow the ball and, and take good paths to the ball. Because if you watch a tennis match, there's no way that you can watch a tennis player move horizontally across the baseline, back and forth at incredible paces while chasing around a ball that, again, is moving somewhere between 80 and 90 miles an hour at any given moment and think they couldn't handle playing second or third base or, you know, or even shortstop. I feel like... I've even talked about how I think that a lot of the skill sets translate to third base defense when we talked in the Scott Rowland podcast. So I'm a firm believer that level of athleticism could handle infield defense at the very least with, again, with the training of how to field and things like that. They certainly have the athleticism for it. And then again, you look at the kind of swing power that they're able to put on a tennis ball. I think if nothing else, a woman could easily end up playing as like an Ichiro-style speed-oriented slap hitter, if nothing else. You know, never mind that we have women regularly in college softball hitting gigantic bombs and whatnot. But if we train them to hit the ball in the air, 
you know, you get that velocity and you take the added velocity coming from the pitch, by the way, because again, a lot of these times they're hitting a ball that is stationary that fast. Oh, and by the way, they hit these balls when it's coming 90 miles an hour to them. They hit them on the run. They're running to them and then hitting them. So if they were standing, you know, still, do you think they could handle that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that they could. And I, I think they would have the, the visual acuity to track a ball moving that fast and the hand-eye coordination to hit it and hit it correctly. And, uh, you know, do you think they could handle a curveball? Do yourself a favor. Watch a topspin forehand coming at you sometime on a tennis court. It, it, it's the exact same motion. It's making the exact same movements and the exact same bends. Absolutely, they could hit a curveball or a slider moving at those speeds. They could absolutely hit baseballs at that velocity. And again, especially if you're considering taking someone with this, the, that athletic skill set and giving them the lifetime of training that most Major League Baseball players get. Now, this is also before we get into the idea, historically speaking, that many women have either successfully played baseball already with men or in men's leagues and have done so throughout baseball history. So when someone says to you, well, a woman couldn't play professional baseball, many already have and, and thrived, have been at that replacement level that we're talking about. So it's it's sort of insane because it has happened already. It's genuinely remarkable. Now, to go into that history, it's worth noting that initially women playing baseball was pretty darn common from right around the 1860s all the way up through the 1900s, right around the early 1900s, I should say. There were leagues throughout the country for women and of uh, mixed gender all over the country and served as a pretty popular form of exercise and entertainment at the time. Slowly over time, though, women were pushed more towards softball and other sports, but that doesn't mean that there weren't remarkable women who played baseball both against their peers and against men throughout that time period and beyond. Now, before we get into the two players I am looking to rank today, I want to share some stories. So, like I said, some of these women I talk about, I'm not going to rank, but I think their stories are really cool or, or really inspiring or really impressive, and I want to talk about them first. So, you know, and because of the lack of statistics, you know, usually I go down and break down a career year to year and go into the whole stories, but since I don't have a lot of those statistics for that, we can't really do that. So it's a little different than your usual episode, but bear with me here. I think it's really uh, going to be fun. And I think these women merit talking about both for their impact on the story of baseball, but also for what it means for women's representation as athletes as a whole and in baseball as a whole. Now, though, before we do that and dive into some of these stories, let's actually take our first break here real quick. I'm going to grab some water. We'll jump right in and dive into some of these stories. Eating is an emotional experience, which is why managing your weight needs to be a psychological one. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. 
Start taking control of your weight management and join the millions who have lost weight with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Fads come and go, and nowhere more than in the world of weight loss. That's why Noom has created weight management programs that are made to last. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. So stop chasing health trends and join the millions who have lost weight with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome back. Perhaps one of the most famous stories of women in baseball took place in the 1930s and involved a 17-year-old Southpaw named Jackie Mitchell. Hailing from Memphis, Tennessee, legend has it that Mitchell had been tutored in all things baseball, including how to play by her neighbor and future Hall of Famer, Dazzy Vance, one of the greatest pitchers of his generation. Now, once Jackie's family moved to Chattanooga, she got the opportunity to play ball with the local AA minor league team, the Lookouts. That same year, the Lookouts president, Joe Engel, booked two exhibition games against the Yankees. Yes, those Yankees. One of the greatest baseball teams of all time. Those Yankees, right? I say 1930s and Yankees, and you know the team I'm talking about. That's how great they were. And this is where Mitchell would come into play, as she was signed just before these games were to take place. And it was announced that she was going to pitch in one of these exhibitions. And... For the record, again, as in when I say she's going to pitch in one of these exhibitions, I I mean that as in she would face, oh, I don't know, Babe freaking Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and, and, you know, one of the greatest teams of all time at 17 years old. That takes guts. Can you imagine? That would be like taking someone who hasn't even played rookie ball yet and putting them up there if you were looking at it from a modern perspective. Now, the scouting report on Mitchell was that she had a fantastic curveball that had a ton of sink to it. And even with that at her disposal, it's still a daunting task. Now, as outlined by author Tony Horowitz in Smithsonian Magazine, the story goes that on April 2nd, 1931, after the lookout's unnamed starting pitcher, I couldn't find who it was, gives up two hits to start the inning, Engel comes out and pulls the pitcher. He brings Mitchell in out of the bullpen to face, I mean, literally face the Sultan of Swat himself. That's the first batter she faces with two runners on. And legend has it that she proceeded to strike him out looking. Next up was Gehrig. She fans him on three straight swing strikes. Just incredible. Absolutely wild. She then proceeded to walk the next hitter, at which point the lookouts would pull her from the game. But at this point, news reverberated throughout the country. A girl. Had, uh, I don't even want to say, not to say a woman, but she was, she was not even a, an adult yet. Had struck out the great Bambino and Lou Gehrig at 17 years old. Now, obviously there's some debate as to the veracity of the story. 
This is the fun part about baseball, and especially baseball this era, is how much is the myth and how much is the truth. And some will claim that Ruth and Gehrig were on the take, so to say, that they were essentially paid to take a dive in the name of entertainment. This was an exhibition game. It's not like it was, you know, necessarily being, you know, going to impact their stats or anything like that. The thing is, both Ruth and Gehrig swear otherwise. And Lefty Gomez, a pitcher on the Yankees, at the time claims that their manager, Joe McCarthy, would have never let them strike out on purpose. He was far too competitive to let them do that. And, and, you know, obviously I can see both ways. Here's how I see it. First of all, just for the record, again, just to say it one more time, she was 17 years old. If I got up there and had the pitch against Bay Ruth and Lou Gehrig in their primes, the idea that I didn't just throw four balls and just let them go on their way and be like, no, that seems like the best, the best outcome is alone noteworthy and impressive and i mean there's no written proof that ruth or garrick flopped no one can verify that they they flopped they just have a hard time have such a hard time believing that this story be you know for whether it's misogyny or credibility or whatever that that's, that's, to them, Occam's razor, and I don't buy it. Is it possible they weren't taking it seriously enough? Uh, sure, it was an exhibition, and, and it was fun, and they were facing a, you know, a 17-year-old. And, and then suddenly Mitchell's talent catches them by surprise? Yeah, I could certainly see that. I also see that she was just that good. You know, surely it's definitely possible that any of these outcomes were there. But honestly, again, if anything, being able to catch Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig by surprise is a testament to how good she was at 17. And some historians have weighed in, you know, said, well, there's no way she had the talent level of it or, you know, things like it's, it, We're not going to know. Again, she was 17. And if nothing else, it's a legendary story that has been retold time and time again. And uh, again, is important to telling the story and mythology of baseball. Uh, this is kind of what it's all about. These kind of stories are what this whole podcast exists for, frankly. And because of that, I choose to believe it. For no other reason than it's way more fun to believe that it's true. Sure, you can poo-poo it or be doubtful, but th th that just seems less fun. And it should be fun. So I'm all about it. I am I believe that it's true. Now, as I mentioned, Mitchell was signed to a contract with, uh, with, the, with the Lookouts. And, of course, worst commissioner ever, Judge Landis Kanesaw, had to step in, because why not? And after the game, he voids Mitchell's minor league contract, ending her time in the minors and professional baseball through that avenue. Now, she would continue to play baseball professionally for years. If you remember from talking about the Negro Leagues, there were baseball, it was very common for baseball to have traveling teams, so to say, the barnstorm across the country playing exhibitions and playing against, you know, professional teams and, and whatnot throughout the country. And Mitchell would go on to do that for several years before retiring, you know, be, mostly because she found, uh, the, the, at least the way the story goes, that she found a lot of the the entertainment part of it, the, the antics that go along with it to not be what she was all about. So the more showy aspects of barnstorming baseball really didn't appeal to her. So she ends up retiring and that's Jackie Mitchell's baseball career. And just, you know, it is really what myths and legends talk about. She gets one inning, right? 
one inning. And for one inning, what a remarkable story. And what a remarkable career for Jackie Mitchell. Just, it's awesome. I love it. It's one of my favorite stories in baseball history. And I love telling it. So hopefully you enjoyed that. Now, the second player I wanted to highlight. And this player is the first player we'll eventually end up ranking uh, here. She played in the 1940s and the 1950s. And her name was Tony Stone. As a black woman in that era, Stone shattered multiple barriers. She didn't just play professional baseball. She played at the highest levels of the Negro Leagues among several all-time greats, including uh, two players I've already talked about and have ranked on this list in Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson. Stone had grown up playing baseball in St. Paul, Minnesota, and even as her parents tried to drive her to play other sports, all of which, again, as an excellent athlete, she excelled at, it was baseball that really stuck with her. By 16 years old, Stone had actually picked up with an, a local all-male barnstorming team called the Twin City Colored Giants. So at an age where most of us would be thinking about trying to learn how to drive a car, Stone was already being paid to play baseball. She was already a professional baseball player. And again, to put that in perspective, most 16-year-olds today would be playing in, like, rookie ball at best, if not still a few years away from playing in, in rookie ball. And Stone was already playing at some of the highest levels in baseball at the time that she could play in, against men as well. Now, in 1943, she moves to San Francisco to help take care of a sick sister, and while there, she caught on with a local American Legion baseball team where she played from 1943 to 1945. In 1946, though, she makes history by signing with the San Francisco Sea Lions of the West Coast Negro Baseball League. At this point, she's 31. She was not just playing professional baseball with and against men, which she'd already accomplished, but now she was doing it at the highest level she could. This is really impressive. You're basically talking about playing at at a major league level is the sort of the, a lot of historians would talk about the Negro Leagues themselves were basically considered the equal, historically speaking, to the pre-segregation MLB. So she's playing at an incredibly high level that shows that women could play with men. We've we've debated whether a woman could play baseball at the highest level. And the thing is, Tony Stone already has was doing it right there. And at this point, she was primarily a second baseman. She played with the Sea Lions until 1949 when she moved to New Orleans and played for the New Orleans Black Pelicans and the New Orleans Creoles of the Negro Southern League. In 1953, Stone was signed by the Indianapolis Clowns of the Negro American League to play second base. Their previous second baseman had recently left to go play for the Milwaukee Braves, namely one Hank Aaron. That's how highly they felt of of Tony Stone was that they chose her to fill in for Hank Aaron. Okay, while playing for the Clowns that year, stories had it that Stone actually ripped a hit off of Satchel Paige, current number two player on this podcast list, ranking players throughout history and one of the greatest pitchers ever, let alone probably the greatest Negro League pitcher ever. Yeah, that's Satchel Paige. She got a hit off of him, which is incredible. Quoting Stone on Facing Page, she said, he was so good, she remembered, that he'd ask batters where they wanted it just so they'd have a chance, he'd ask. You want a high, you want a low, you want it right in the middle. Just people still couldn't get a hit against him. 
So I get up there and he says, hey, T, how do you like it? And I said, it doesn't matter. Just don't hurt me. When he wound up, he had these big old feet. All you could see was a shoe. He stood there. Uh, I stood there shaking, but I got a hit right out over second base. Happiest moment of my life. She played one more year in the Negro American League for the Kansas City Monarchs the following season before retiring in 1954, having hit 243 over her two seasons in the Negro American League at the age of 33. She would go on to play amateur baseball for many more years before eventually retiring completely when her husband grew ill. Things weren't always easy for Stone in the Negro Leagues. Stone recalled being shunned by teammates who told her to quote, go home and fix your husband some biscuits. But she also, it wasn't all bad. She mentioned Al Lombardi was a teammate that was really good to her when she played for the New Orleans Creoles. She reportedly, I think in, it was either in an interview or in her memoirs, it said she told him, a woman has her dreams too. When you finish high school, they tell a boy to go out and see the world. What do they tell a girl? They tell her to go next door and marry the boy that their families picked for her. It wasn't right. A woman can do many things. And it turns out, she was right. Just a remarkable story. Now, it's not just in baseball's past that we see women succeed in baseball. Julie Crote was a pitcher in the 1970s who, as a teenager, fought to play on her local varsity baseball team. After playing baseball against boys her whole childhood, they ended up even filing groundbreaking discrimination lawsuits to try and attain her rightful place on the team. At the time, she had been attending several baseball clinics, and those who ran the clinics or coached her before had felt and testified that she had talent on par with the boys her age. The U.S. District Court would rule against Crote in these, I don't know if it's, I apologize if it's uh, Corteo. It, it, I'm not necessarily sure on the pronunciation with that name, but in these lawsuits, the district court would rule against her, claiming that Title IX didn't apply in this situation. Now, a reporter covering the trial named Mike Zitz took notice of Crote, and in addition to reporting, Zitz was the manager of the Fredericksburg Giants of the Virginia Baseball League, and he said at the time, Julie was crushed. I could see how much she loved baseball, and I couldn't live with myself. I didn't give her a chance to see what she could do. So he invites uh, Crote to try out and ends up making the, uh, she ends up making the team in 1988 to get an idea of the competitive level. She would have been playing against uh, minor leaguers and those who were about to join the minor leagues. So college players, things like that. I think sometimes in some ways, like a smaller version of the, the Cape, uh, the Cape Cod league, stuff like that. So that same year, she was accepted to a division three school, St. Mary's college of Maryland. She tried out for their baseball team in spring of the following year. She indeed made the team. Suddenly, Corteo's games were receiving national coverage as a woman playing NCAA baseball. She hits 222 that season as a freshman while playing second base, and she would continue to play for the Seahawks until her junior year, feeling that there was more she could do to give women an equal footing in sports beyond just playing baseball. So she takes a 14-month leave of absence from the team. She interns with the Women's Sports Foundation and actually appears as an extra in the movie A League of Their Own. Now, the media would claim that Criteo was forced off the team by the way her teammates treated her in the locker room. It include claims of sexual harassment and sexism from both the players and from the athletic department. Criteo adamantly says that wasn't the case, 
but that all lingered at the time. Now, after graduating, Cordeo would go on to coach baseball at Western New England University in 1993 and the University of Massachusetts Amherst from 1995 to 1996, which was a Division I school. This made her the first woman to coach an NCAA Division I school for baseball. In 1994, she would join the Colorado Silver Bullets, a women's professional team that would play against semi-professional men, and then for the Maui Stingrays of the Hawaii Winter Baseball League, which made her the first woman to play in a Major League Baseball-sanctioned league. Finally, in 2004, Cordeo was selected to be the third base coach for the United States women's national baseball team, which captured the gold medal at the 2004 Women's Baseball World Cup in Edmonton. In 2006, Cordeo was promoted to become the manager of the women's national team, which won the Women's World Cup in Taiwan, and she became the first woman to manage a women's baseball team to the gold medal in any international baseball competition. So, a very impressive resume, just an incredible ball player and, and really a barrier breaker as well. And this is just scratching the surface of the successful modern women players we're seeing in today's game. Eri Yoshida taught herself how to throw a knuckleball in Yokohama, Japan, watching Tim Wakefield as a child, and at 16 became a national sensation dubbed the Knuckle Princess, which is an absolutely dope nickname. I love it and was signed to a professional contract playing baseball for the Kobe 9 crews of the Kansai Independent League in 2008. In 2009, Yoshida was signed to play in the Arizona Winter League for 35 games. The league was meant as a showcase for Major League Scouts and professional scouts. And on February 14th, she threw four shutout innings to get her first win in the league. She then signed in 2010 to play in the Golden Baseball League in the U.S., where she was managed by Gary Templeton and got to train with Tim Wakefield himself, achieving a lifelong dream. This also made her the first woman in baseball history to pitch professionally in three different countries, and she would continue playing across various American and Japanese leagues until 2017. And again, we're just getting started. We haven't even talked about Kelsey Whitmore who was signed in April of 2022 by the Staten Island Ferryhawks at 23 years old to become one of the first women to sign a contract with a professional league affiliated with Major League Baseball. Whitmore won a silver medal in 2014 on the U.S. Women's National Team at the Women's Baseball World Cup and a gold medal at the 2015 Pan American Games. She compiled a 1.35 ERA for Team USA from 2014 to 2019, she also hit 348 during the 2019 Pan Am Games. Did I mention she's a Shohei Otani-style two-way player? Whitmore had actually played professional ball against men before, as she'd played for the Sonoma Stompers in 2016 at just 18 years old. If you might, if the name Sonoma Stompers rings a bell, if you've read the book, The Only Rules That It Has to Work, that is, the Sonoma Stompers are the minor league team featured in that book, and... Uh, she plays for them at just 18 years old. And then she played for the Portland Pickles the following year as a pitcher. She hasn't gotten a ton of playing time yet for the Fairyhawks. And in the time she's gotten, she struggled a little bit. But for a two-way player that young, trying to break new ground, that's not necessarily surprising. So it'll be really interesting to see how this season goes for Whitmore. And regardless, she's already accomplished so much. It's just a very impressive player. I could go on and on for days. I even got to talk about Rachel Bokovic 
who recently became the first woman to manage an affiliated minor league team when she was hired by the Yankees to manage their low A affiliate, or Ronnie Gauchowinick, who uh, manages the Diamondbacks high A team as well. Justin Siegel, who was the first woman co- uh, the first woman to coach in Major League Baseball, and actually the first woman to ever throw live batting practice during uh, the 2001 spring training. Uh, Alyssa Necken became the first full-time coach on a Major League staff recently, and Rachel Folden recently became the Cubs director of hitting in, tw- in uh, 2010. Heck, we haven't even mentioned Monet Davis and how she turned the Little League World Series on its head, making a must-see TV, and is now starring for the uh, historically black college university, Hampton University. We haven't talked about Genevieve Beacom, who was the first woman to play in the Australian Baseball League just, I believe, last year at 17 years old. Illa Borders was the first woman to pitch in a men's college baseball game in 1994 for Southern College California, for Southern, sorry, for Southern California College, and from 1997 to 2000, she actually made 52 starts in the independent minor leagues, which at the time was the first to happen since baseball integrated. Because as we look at pitchers like Tony, uh, Tony, players like Tony Stone played professional baseball before integration. Now I could literally go on and on with the list of impressive women making an impact in baseball and who have made an impact on baseball throughout its history. The list is just incredibly long. Now, I do have one more player that I want to talk about in some more detail. But uh, before I do, let's actually take our last break here. Sometimes it can feel like food has an emotional control over you. Well, it's time to show your food who's boss with Noom. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. Start taking control of your weight management and join the millions who have lost weight with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Most weight loss programs are short-term fixes, but the problem is managing your weight needs a long-term solution. And that's what makes Noom different. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight today and in the future. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain, and they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. Start taking control of your weight management and join the millions who have lost weight with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome back. So I'm sure if there's one thing that pops into everyone's mind 
when talking about women's baseball or women in baseball, we jump straight to the movie A League of Their Own. And it's depiction of the real-life All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, which was formed at least partially to fill in the baseball gap left by World War II. And it, the league existed from 1943 to 1954. Now, the movie isn't completely accurate. First off, to mention a lot of the women playing in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, or the AAGPBL, I'm not sure the abbreviation's any easier to say, were a lot younger than you realize in the movie. And I think... We'll talk about it, but it's important to understand, again, I've said it multiple times talking about a lot of these women who, when we have a tendency to, to judge them uh, and their performance, it's worth noting they were remarkably young for their for what they were trying to do. And, and you have to keep that in mind as you're looking at the accomplishments and if you're looking at the numbers and things like that. Now, one thing the movie didn't exaggerate was the popularity of the league. It was a huge hit and was a big selling uh, ticket, so to say. Now, it also didn't exaggerate much of the sexism and a lot of the different issues that the women had to overcome playing in that league. And I firmly believe that it's impossible to tell the story of baseball without talking about the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. It's such a, a sticking point in our public consciousness and, and how we understand baseball. And again, as this league that stepped up and kept baseball alive at a time when oh, it wasn't going on in in majors in the majors because of World War II. Now, the player I want to talk about probably holds the title as the greatest player in the history of the league, if nothing else, the most beloved, namely Dorothy or Dottie Schrader. Now, if you've seen uh, A League of Their Own, Schrader served as the primary inspiration for Gina Davis's character of the same name. And she's the only player in the history of the league to appear in all 12 seasons of the league's existence as a shortstop and is the career leader in games with 1,249 games played. She is the leader in RBIs with 431, leader in at-bats with 4,129. She also is the leader in strikeouts and walks with both marks sitting at 566. And that's right, for her career, she walked as often as she struck out over a 12-year career. She was second in hits all-time with 870, and was third in home runs with 43, and was the youngest player in the league when she joined, which was, by the way, at 15 years old. 15! Like, how remarkable is it to be a professional in anything, let alone in, a, in, a, in an incredibly difficult sport like baseball? Uh, like, how remarkable is it to be a professional in anything, let alone in, a, in, a, in an incredibly difficult sport like baseball, uh, at 15 years old? I, I barely fumbled my way through well, pretty much everything in life at 15 years old. Uh, it's just honestly remarkable. And to do so and then become one of the best players in the league and one of the most popular players in the league. It's just really, really special. Now, the other thing to think about is it's hard, it would be hard to assume that at 15 years old, she was at the physical peak, strength-wise, right? And at that age, this limits a lot of her early power and does so for a lot of players. It kind of feels like early baseball where, you know, if you had six or seven home runs, if you remember when we talk about, like, say, home run Baker or some of those players, you know, that was the kind of home run totals you'd see is you could lead the league with seven or eight home runs early on it also didn't help that in its first, I believe, it's either its first year or its first two years, the league used underhand pitching. And 
it's funny you would think, oh, well, oh, you just lob it in there. Of course, you can crush it. It actually works the other way. It works to suppress hitting in general because when you think about it, the way the physics of a pitch works, when you throw it overhand or with any speed, really, the way it works is when you hit the ball, you're not just providing the power. The momentum of the ball provides a lot of its power, how it rebounds. It actually like sort of stretches around the bat and then snaps back into place, and all that energy goes you know, it helps it, you know, travel further, actually. And if you're just, you know, kind of, you know, underhand pitching it or throwing it in there underhand, you as the hitter have to supply every ounce of power, which, by the way, most men playing in the majors don't do. They, they get a 90-something mile an hour fastball to do that with. So it's worth noting that some of the reason the power hitter, the power numbers weren't as high, especially early on, is also because they're pitching underhand, which greatly suppresses that, and hitting in general, right? Now, growing up, Dottie had learned baseball from her father, who managed a local semi-pro team in their hometown of Champaign, Illinois. While I couldn't find a year-to-year breakdown of Schrader's stats, there were some notable numbers I was able to find. In 1944, for instance, she stole 70 bases, which is... (laughs) A ton. Eat your heart out, Ricky Henderson. Because again, I don't think I mentioned this, but to get an idea, they usually played like right around 100 games a season, right? She stole like 70 bases in either 100 or fewer games. It's just crazy. And then she hit 242 from 1949 to 1954, so across her whole, the back end of her career. In 1953 in particular, she hit 285 with six home runs and was named MVP of the league. In 1954, she was even better. She hit 304, and her power numbers exploded as she hit 17 home runs that season. And I think this is interesting. It's worth noting by now, the league was pitching overhand, and Dottie was now 26. So obviously entering into her physical peak as an athlete. And this feels like a typical breakout age for a hitter in baseball, even by today's standards. I mean, that's kind of when, if you were to think about when player in, in today's game, in the majors, starts to come into his power and hit his physical peak. It is, you know, it's right around 25, 26. That's when we do expect him to kind of start breaking into the majors. And so this feels like the typical breakout age for a hitter. And the unfortunate part is, right as you think Dottie is hitting her physical peak and is ready to start demolishing baseballs, the league folds after 1954. And I think this leads to an interesting what if in terms of Dottie's career numbers. I listed them off before, but she's third all time in AAGPBL history with 43 home runs. She hit 17 of those 43 home runs in that last season, right? So you have to wonder if the league had kept going on and if we kept keeping track of her statistics. She could have put up some really, really impressive home run numbers, right? And, you know, at some point, just just being honest, if you're asking do they have the power to to hit home runs, you see it right there, right? So I think it would have been really fascinating to see where the rest of her career would have gone if the league hadn't folded. Now, Schrader would go on to play on several touring teams for four more years after that, and we don't have really any statistics from that time period, but... She was considered a star over those years all over the country. And after after that, she does end up finally retiring from professional baseball and sort of just 
goes off to kind of a normal, sort of a normal everyday life. And it's remarkable when you consider that she was easily the most popular player in the league throughout her entire career. It was really considered sort of, the, the, the comparison I'll make is to a certain degree was a, you know, you think of like a Roger Maris or a Mickey Mantle who are like the American icon for what baseball should be. You know, this, you know, sort of, you know, corn-fed, all-American, you know, virtuous, you know, sort of player. And th that's what Dottie was for for this league and for women in baseball. And, and like, I don't mean to exaggerate, but she probably is the single most iconic woman to play baseball. Yeah, if you think of it in terms of where she sits in the public zeitgeist or in terms of our consciousness, right? If you were to be like, at the very least, you'd be like, name me a, wo a woman who played professional baseball. Probably the average person is going to name, even if they don't necessarily know Dottie Schrader's name, would probably be like, oh, well, Gina, Gina Davis's character from uh, A League of Her Own, right? So, I mean, it probably is the most iconic woman player in terms of uh, public consciousness and culturally speaking. You know, I mean, uh, literally, like, the main character in one of the best, if not the best, baseball movie of all time. I think there's a pretty big argument that Dottie Schrader has a huge impact on how we view baseball in the 1940s and whether or not baseball, frankly, survives the 1940s and has a huge cultural impact on baseball, on women, on America. It's really impressive. So now that we have Dottie Schrader sort of laid out in terms of her history, the question is, who from today's podcast do we rank on the list? And I think I mentioned before that I think Tony Stone qualifies, and I think Schrader does too. So let's rank those two players. Now, none of these remarkable women I want to mention, none of them, no one I've talked about today, no one that we'll talk about in the future, none of them need my judgment as a, as a white male who is, you know, mediocre at slow pitch softball, let alone uh, baseball. None of these remarkable women need my judgment, nor should my, my opinion matter on what they've accomplished. They should, I, I hope they know they've accomplished incredible things. And I don't think it matters whether or not it's in comparison to you know, Major League Baseball or anything like that. They are, they are judged on the merits of their own accomplishments on their own, right? And that's kind of how I'm going to look at the... The rankings, you know, it's not going to be uh, necessarily a comparison to to the to the accomplishments from the view of like are they, you know, how they compare to Major League Baseball. It's going to be amongst their peers and amongst sort of their impact, if that makes sense. Now, I will admit, because of that, I am going to be leaning pretty heavily on the the cultural aspect of these women's contributions because we don't have a plethora of statistics or even a plethora of details for a lot of the, their careers that normally I do have for a player I'm evaluating. So understand I'm going to be leaning in that direction a lot, right? And I'm not sure. I hope I'm going to take a stab at this and you know, lean towards making sure that I give proper weight to their accomplishments, but also, you know, making sure I'm doing this right and objectively and, you know, all that good stuff. So now before we do that, though, let's actually read off the list so we kind of get an idea of what we're looking at. So 
Starting with the top 15, number one is Satchel Paige. Number two is Josh Gibson. Number three is Mickey Mantle. Number four is Greg Maddox. Number five is Mike Trout. Number six is Ichiro. Number seven is George Brett. Number eight is Adrian Beltre. Number nine is Clayton Kershaw. Number 10 is Edgar Martinez. Number 11 is Sandy Koufax. Number 12 is Tony Gwen. Number 13 is Hank Greenberg. Number 14 is Nolan Arenado. Number 15 is Joey Votto. Number 20 is Johan Santana. Number 25 is Bryce Harper. Number 30 is Jose Altuve. Number 35 is Corey Kluber. Number 40 is Evan Longoria. Number 45 is Moises Alou. Number 50 is Cabrian Hayes. Number 55 is Aramis Ramirez. And number 60 is James Paxton. And, you know, this is a, it's an interesting question because usually you have like, Again, with statistics, you should have like some kind of a a, a, a starting point, a, a mile marker. You know, I could say, oh, well, they've hit 300 home runs, so we'll go right here, you know, or whatever. But I don't think that works here. As I understand, obviously, especially we'll start with Schrader. Schrader doesn't have the statistical output of some of the players listed below at this point. And again, I don't want to like overvalue if they've, if they've, you know, were good enough to play with the boys or, you know, but I will factor that in. But but I I want them to be measured on their accomplishments, you know, so to say. And I think if you factor in with regard to her peers in in her league and in the time she played, in that regard, she was the tippy top of the league. You know, she was the most popular player in the league. She was she won an MVP. She was considered the be- the best player, and was you know as you saw a statistical leader all-time in many categories. And I think where I'm kind of looking is somewhere around number 50 at Cabrian Hayes. And I think that when you take in the cultural aspect of, of what she was able to accomplish and, you know, being pretty much the most recognizable woman culturally to have played baseball professionally, I think for now that's a, a good spot to start with. Now, if I go above Cabrian Hayes, the question is above that is Jason Veritek at 49. And one of the things I think is really important about about Schrader is I think she's just so important to how we tell the story of baseball throughout its history. And that puts her above Cabrian Hayes for me. Our part is when you get to Jason Veritek, I don't know if she gets too much higher than that in that he's such a vital character in telling baseball story in his own era. And obviously for Red Sox fans... And I don't know what to do with that, you know, but I think it's interesting in the way that you keep kind of going up historically because there's there's an argument culturally to throw the trader could go. And when you talk about cultural importance, you know, you, if, you, if you really weigh, weigh in that, you can start getting up to more like, you know, number 30, number 30 with like Jose Altuve and Homer Baker at 31 and like that area. But, you know, Without the longevity of, you know, the, the the league and, you know, without wanting to put too much impact on the cultural aspect of it, I think putting her right between Jason Veritek and Cabrian Hayes at 50 makes sense. I think that's a good start, a good spot for her. It's worth noting, uh, I love feedback and to see how people think about this or feel about this. I feel it's a, a good spot and a, a fair spot. We will be doing, you know, this will be the 61st and 62nd player that I've ranked on this podcast. 
probably either when we get to like 75, maybe even 100 or somewhere around that, but I'm thinking 75. I'll probably do an episode where I look at the list and remove some folks around because there's some people I want to reevaluate like Robin Ventura or who's too far down, frankly, looking back at, at 54, that there are some players I, I'd like to reevaluate. And, you know, I'd love feedback in this, say, see how people think about this, whether or not I should be moving the trader up more or, or at this good spot. That way I kind of have an idea for that reevaluation episode. Now, for Tony Stone, it's a bit harder. If we didn't have enough statistics for for Schrader, we have even less statistics for Stone, which can make it tough to rank her, or at least even find a starting point. But here's the thing. She broke down a lot of barriers and actually played against men her entire career, right? Uh, in fact, she wasn't allowed in the the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League because it was still segregated. So she went and played against, against men her whole career and was successful for quite some time doing so. I mean, she got a hit off of Satchel Page Again, number number one on the list. Got a hit off of him, right? She is actual living proof that a, a woman could play professional baseball at the highest level amongst men and that, they, that women are men's equals in baseball. So I think because of that, even though Schrader's more recognizable sort of in the zeitgeist or in our, in our brains as baseball fans, I think what Stone accomplished is is maybe even more important and more significant. I think that has to count a bit more, especially if, again, sort of the premise we came in was that a woman could play in the majors. Stone proves it, right? So by confirming our premise, I think, I know we just named Schrader as the new number 50, but I still kind of grant the same premise. I don't know if I'd go above Veritech. It, it, it's an interesting question. I'm, I'm a little torn as to whether or not I would put how, how I view Veritek versus Tony Stone. You know, I think as a groundbreaker, and I think of, of the things that, because not only did Tony Stone have to overcome being a woman, but also had to, you know, exist in America as a black player, right? So, you know, facing uh, a real double whammy at the time of things to overcome. And again, was successful, was breaking down tons of barriers. I actually think I'm going to put Tony Stone above Veritek here for that cultural impact. I think it's really, really important. I love Jason Veritek. I think he's, he's a really great player. As I mentioned, is, is culturally significant to the Red Sox fans and to baseball. But I think, I think, I think Tony Stone deserves to go above that. Let me know how you feel about that. But so what we're going to do with Schrader, then we have 50, well now bumped down to 51, but that makes Jason Veritek the new number 50. And then Tony Stone will be the new number 49. So that's our episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this interesting and fun. It's fun to talk about baseball outside of the confines of just the the major leagues or even the major leagues and the Negro leagues to really look at baseball. I, I think if we learned anything watching the World Baseball Classic, one of the best things I think we took away with this is that baseball exists outside of this little bubble of American baseball and frankly, American male baseball that multiple countries and multiple cultures and multiple groupings of people play baseball and each has its own unique aspects of baseball its own you know perspectives on how the game is played and the styles and the the fandom it's just it's a very diverse sport and we like to act like it's not but it is an incredibly diverse sport worldwide and i like getting outside of major league baseball a little bit 
and looking at the how women have impacted the game itself, you know. And again, we're barely scratching the surface. There are so many more players. There are other women who end up playing in the, in the Negro Leagues that we can talk about. I mean, there's an entire league just looking at the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League that, that we could talk about that just we're barely scratching the surface. So I, I feel like even having done this episode, I'm still not even doing justice to how much impact women have had on baseball. And I hope I've at least done some justice to it. So we'll, this will not be the last episode we do of this type. So I, I will certainly be revisiting and we'll, we'll continue trying to tell the story of women in baseball here throughout the history of this podcast. Now, with that, you know, to kind of give you an idea of what's coming up next. Again, coming off the World Baseball Classic and seeing how cool, you know, baseball is globally and how popular it is. With that in mind, since Japan won the World Baseball Classic, I figure we should dive into some of the greatest Japanese baseball players of all time. We've already talked about Ichiro, but I figure we'll do an episode about uh, Shohei Otani probably next week. And then after we kick things off that way, we'll take a look at some of the best players from the Nippon Professional Baseball League and its history and maybe see if we can learn something new about some new players. I think it'd be a really cool way to celebrate the diversity and fun of the World Baseball Classic. And so we'll start that next week on Friday at noon Eastern. Until then, everyone, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy your Friday. You can reach me at Daniel J. Port on Twitter, or you can reach the podcast at LB Legacies on Twitter if you have any comments, any questions, anything about the rankings you want to debate or talk about. And then since Twitter's, you know, dying a slow death, it seems like these days, you can also reach the podcast at longballlegacies at gmail.com is our email address. Please feel free to shoot us an email. If there's a player you want to hear us talk about or a theme you'd want to suggest or just to give us feedback. We love it. And uh, other than that, like I said, enjoy your weekend and uh, we'll talk to you next week. 